I love things that are simple. James' brother, I, love, I like to help people, so I invited them. That's a good word. Well, we have been studying the book of Proverbs this summer uh, and moving through it, and I was all prepared uh, to give you a sermon on marriage from the book of Proverbs and what does Proverbs have to say about marriage, and I have punted that to next week. Uh, if you picked up the sermon notes, then you've noticed that our subject is a different subject today. I was praying this week and thinking about you all in light of the acts of violence that have taken place in our country uh, last week and just really thinking, God, how do we respond to that? And what do you want us to, how do you want us to address that? And I just felt compelled that, you know, we don't, we don't depart from our sermon schedule lightly. We don't usually let current events just kind of move us off of our plan. We recognize that the most important thing we can do is systematically give people God's word. And so we try to do that really faithfully. But every once in a while, there are moments in our current events that, that jump out at us, particularly when things like acts of violence become our 22nd and 23rd acts of violence in our country just in 2019. Uh, that seem to call for a response and just pastorally I recognize that events like what took place in El Paso and in Dayton last Saturday, they create confusion, they create grief, they might even just create indifference and even recognizing that indifference as your pastor, I wanna help you deal with those things. I wanna help you understand a biblical response to, to these kinds of events. What does it look like for me as a Christian to respond in the confusion that I feel, in the hurt that I feel, maybe the anger that I feel, or perhaps if what you feel is indifference because like me, sometimes you see so many tragedies so often, it just feels like it's easier to shut down and become indifferent to them rather than allow your heart to be rent by them. Uh, rather than allow it to really hit you and impact you and ponder it and think about it. And so I was wrestling this week. I spent all, Wednesday's a big sermon prep day for me, so I spent a good portion of the day uh, preparing from Proverbs to preach, and just all day long there was this nagging thing, and it was the Spirit of God, I came to find out by the end of the day, that was saying, hey, I want you to do something different. And I, I, in studying, this was kind of the clincher, that morning I had been in, I've been just reading through the minor prophets in my quiet time, in my time with the Lord, my prayer time, my own just personal devotional life. You know, in Amos chapter five, there's this great chapter where essentially God says through the prophet Amos to the people, he says, look, all your religious duties, all your sacrifices, all the things that you're doing really mean nothing to me because you haven't been about justice. You haven't cared for the poor and needy. If you haven't cared for the poor and needy, I don't want your religiosity. I don't care about it couldn't care less, don't want it. In fact, you think the day of the Lord is gonna be a great day for you? The day of the Lord will be darkness and not light for you if you have not practiced justice and righteousness. He says, I want justice to roll down like mighty waters. When that happens, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, when that happens, then the day of the Lord will be light for you and not darkness. That's what I had read that morning. And then I was studying and I got to the end of Proverbs and in chapter 31 there's this beautiful description of a godly wife. And of course I was thinking about marriage and so I was coming to that text and reading it. And before I got to the part about the wife, this is what I read. Proverbs chapter 31 verse eight says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So I read that and I said, okay, the sermon has to be something different this week. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like us to think about how we respond rightly as believers to violence, particularly violence rooted in racial hatred. Particularly violence rooted in racial hatred. I'm not gonna dig deep into the, all the uh, you know, 
details of the news cycle that you've heard about you know, the events that have transpired. I just simply wanna get us into the word of God and help us think about these things. First, I wanna think about how do we respond to violence in general? I wanna give you two thoughts on that and then I wanna give you a biblical theology of race that will help you respond rightly to acts of violence that are rooted in racial hatred. Fair enough? All right, awesome, fantastic. Uh, so let's talk about that first question then. How do we respond to violence generally, particularly when it seems to be so prevalent? And the two thoughts I wanna give you is this. The first one is, is learn to lament. Learn to lament. There's a great book in the Bible, it's called what? Lamentations, yeah, absolutely. And we don't read it that much because honestly, it's depressing. It's a sad book, uh, but it's there for a reason. And I would say just sort of culturally for us, Lament, lamenting is probably not something we're that good at. It's not something we spend a lot of time on. Uh, we tend to move quickly, try and move quickly to the positive or move on to the next thing. Lament takes time. And I just wanna give you a few thoughts on what lament looks like scripturally. So let's look at that for a second. The book of Lamentations is a great guide for us when it comes to this. So when I say learn to lament, whenever we encounter moments in our culture, in our country, or in our community, uh, that are like this, there's a real place for lamentation, for lamenting. And there are a couple things that we see when we look at lamentations. I'm gonna hit these somewhat quick because I'm gonna spend the bulk of our time on the second question I asked a moment ago. But this, uh, recognize that Lamentations is a book that's rooted in the fall of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has fallen, and the author of Lamentations, is he's lamenting that fact. He's lamenting the fact that, that Jerusalem has fallen to a foreign enemy, and he recognizes what that means is that the temple of God, the place where God's presence is, the place where God is worshipped, has been desecrated, and it's no longer available to his people, and that causes deep sadness in the heart of the person writing this Lamentation. Here's what we see in chapter one, verse 18. The first thing that we see about lamenting is that lamenting means crying out about our situation, our hard situation. It also means crying out about the sin that caused it. Crying out about the hard situation we are in and the sin that caused it. In chapter one, verse 18, here's what he says. He says, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word but hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. Now that's just one verse and the whole chapter kind of illuminates that. But do you get what he just said in that one verse? What he essentially said is the Lord is in the right. In other words, the Lord has brought this upon us because what is happening right now is the result of our own sin. It's the result of our own choices. We are reaping what we have sown, the author of scripture is saying to us here. And so there's a lamentation which says, I lament that we have been taken into captivity. That's the end of the verse. But the beginning of the verse is, I lament the reason we've been taken into captivity because we are now reaping what we have sown. When we learn to lament, one of the things that we learn to do is we learn to feel sorrowful, yes, about the difficulty we are in. That's appropriate to express to the Lord. But we also express that we recognize that sometimes, perhaps quite often, we are reaping what we have sown. And it's important to lament that as well. The second thing that we see about biblical lamentation is found in chapter three. Now this is kind of the center of the book. This is the pinnacle of this whole book, Lamentations. And we see this, we see lamenting means having expressed our sorrow over both the sin that has caused our circumstance and our circumstance. Having done that, the next thing that we do 
is that we learn to be silent so that we can hear the Lord. We learn to be quiet before the Lord. Having expressed that lamentation, that lament to the Lord, the next thing we see is that it's appropriate to be quiet. In chapter three, verse 25, 26, and 27, it says this. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. What the author of scripture here is saying to us is that even though this is a difficult circumstance and he's been crying out to the Lord, he recognizes that it's good for him then to wait underneath the burden that he is under and to let the Lord eventually rescue him and save him. And he says, it's good for me to to quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. The last thing then is this. Lamenting often, again, I I said earlier, this feels like a depressing book, but actually do you know that the book of Lamentations is here because it's meant to give you hope? Did you know that? It's actually meant to be a book that's supposed to cause a wellspring of hope to rise up and you think, wait, what, how? Like how on earth would a book that is essentially filled with lamenting over a difficult circumstance, how would that actually usher in any kind of hope? Well, listen to what is said in chapter three, verses 19 through 24. So just a little earlier in that same chapter that I just read to you. It says this, it says, remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Now do you see what has just taken place in the book of Lamentations? He said, lamenting brings hope. And here's how it brings hope. Because lamenting brings you to the end of yourself. You are so done when you lament both your sin and the circumstance that you are in. You are so undone by it. And lamenting is a part of becoming undone by it, coming to the end of your own hope of rescuing yourself. That's what lamenting helps you do. And as that happens, guess what fills that void of self where you might have thought I could rescue myself and now you've come to the end of that. What's gonna fill that space up is gonna be the hope that the Lord is your rescuer and that his steadfast love never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. Great is your faithfulness. And then I love this. Look in verse 24, the last thing we read. It says, after, after just saying, I know this to be true, the steadfast love of the Lord has not left me. He has not departed from me. And the, and the lament has helped him see that. And then he says, the Lord is my portion. In other words, no matter what, I recognize that what I have is God. And God is enough. No matter what else may be taken from me, Jerusalem might be ransacked, I might be taken away from my home, I may have nothing left, but I have the Lord. And he is my portion. And he is enough. That's how lamenting causes hope to well up in us. So that's the first thing I would coach or counsel you in is in moments of grief learning to lament is really important responding to violence acts of violence like we've seen learning to practice biblical lament is a really helpful thing the second thing I would say is this just again responding to violence generally 
double down. I mean, really, church, double down on hospitality and deep community. Here's, here's, what I, here's why I say that. These acts of violence are almost always rooted in someone feeling isolated and estranged. And as a church, one of, the, one of our deepest hearts is that you would be deeply connected to one another so that no one would feel isolated and alone. And that we would practice great hospitality. We just heard about Alpha and inviting people to Alpha. Do you know that when you extend that invitation, what you are saying to someone is you are worth an invitation to be a part of what we do here. You are worthwhile. You are loved. You are treasured by God. Enough that I would invite you in to be a part of the community that I'm a part of. That kind of hospitality helps bring an end to isolation, helps bring an end to estrangement. You never know what is percolating in the mind and the heart of the person who feels isolated and alone and estranged and and is infected by any manner of, of weird thinking or odd thinking. We make bad decisions when we feel alone. You know that, right? And when we practice hospitality, what we're, what we're trying to do is bring an end to the seeds of the kinds of violence that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. I mean, that's one, that's one thing that we're trying to aim at. And we're not always thinking when I invite someone, well, this is gonna prevent violence down the road. But what we're saying is we want to be a place, the type of place where in a community, no one in our community ever feels like they have to be isolated or alone because they know that this is a place of hospitality and they're constantly being invited in. How great would it be if there was not a person anywhere in Mechanicsburg, Dillsburg, Camp Hill, anywhere in our surrounding region that hadn't been invited by one of you to come here at some point? Like, I would love it if every person I met, when I, they said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. Oh, where do you pastor? I'm the pastor at West Shore Free Church. They said, oh, I've been invited there. I would love it if any time I said that, that what I do and where I do it, that someone said, oh, I know that church because someone invited me there. There's a lot of y'all. That's feasible. It's feasible that there would be just no one who is not touched by an invitation. Look, they may say no a thousand times. Let's be honest. The thing about inviting people that we were just talking about, if you feel nervous about it, we're trying to help you not feel nervous, we recognize it changes the dynamic of your relationship when you invite someone into a spiritual conversation. It absolutely does. But guess what? If they say, worst thing that's gonna happen is they're gonna say no. And if you're worried about the relational dynamic changing, guess what? You didn't have that good a relationship with them in the first place. So make the invitation and reveal what the relationship is really all about and then work from there. All right? So those are the two things. Double down on deep community. Double down on hospitality. I think those are important things. Now let's turn to the idea of violence rooted in racial hatred. How do we respond specifically to that? Because that's, you know, the things we just said apply certainly, but there are some specific things to deal with there that I think are important. Now, here's what happens. Sometimes in talking about issues of race and racism, the objection gets raised that we are getting distracted from the gospel, and I wanna show you why that is not the case. I want to show you why it's not the case that discussing issues of race are a distraction from the gospel. By the way, usually those same objections are not raised when we talk about issues of sexuality and marriage. And those objections of being distracted from the gospel are usually not raised when we talk about issues of the rights of the unborn and protecting life. Which I find really ironic that we would say that those things are not a distraction from the gospel and yet talking about issues of race are a distraction from the gospel. It's just not true. Here's, here's what I mean by that. When we think about those things like the rights of the unborn, protecting their lives, and that being a gospel issue, it's a gospel issue because they have a creator and a redeemer. 
And they are to be spoken on behalf of. They are the poor and the needy. They are the vulnerable and they are to be spoken on behalf of. They literally have no voice for themselves. And we must take up their voice. The scripture commands us again and again. Talking about sexuality and marriage and God's version of those things. Talking about righteousness in this area. Marriage is to be between a man and woman and sexuality is only to be practiced within the bounds of marriage, within that beautiful covenant called marriage. That's a gospel issue because God is the author of the institution of marriage and he intends that it would show his nature to the world. Marriage is a placeholder for what he is like so that people can see what his love is like and it's also a reminder of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And so they're very much gospel issues, but in the same way, when we think about issues of race, they are a gospel issue. And I wanna show you why through looking at a biblical theology of race. See, here's the deal. In other words, when we talk about something being a gospel issue, what we mean by that is that we are drawing implications about the unborn. We are drawing implications about sexuality and marriage from the very nature of God and his work in Christ. And the implications that we draw about those things and how we should live in light of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ, they have massive implications for the unborn and they have massive implications for sexuality and marriage and therefore those are gospel issues and it's no different with the issue of race and racism. When violence is launched out of racial hatred, it is a gospel issue that we respond to it. It is a gospel issue that we learn to think rightly about the implications of race because of what God has done in Christ. There are deep implications for that. I was reading Russell Moore, who's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission for the Southern Baptist Congregation. He, he wrote about the um, violence in El Paso and Dayton this week. And he, he said this, about failure to address these kinds of acts. He said, to confront such sin is no distraction from the gospel. To the contrary, to not confront it, silently allowing it to sit in the psyches and consciences of the people is not just a distraction from the gospel, but a contradiction of it. A word that says to those caught up in idolatrous path, in an idolatrous path, you shall not surely die. Those are the words of a devil, not a gracious God. I thought that was a good word. So let's do this. We're gonna do some heavy lifting today, is that okay? Awesome, I always like it when I ask you because it really doesn't matter what you say at this point. The sermon is prepared. So I wanna give you a biblical theology of race to help you think about issues like this and then some practical thoughts about how we respond. Now look, friends, I recognize when we talk about race, it makes us feel defensive. I, I know that that's a normal reaction I wanna help free you from that. That's, that's the thing is this is coming from a pastoral heart. This, don't hear this coming from a get your act together heart. It's just coming from a, you know, pastors are supposed to be shepherds. You know that, right? We're supposed to lead our people. I just wanna lead you. I wanna give you God's truth because I, I want you to get glory for him. And I want you to love him. I want you to know him. I want you to look like him. I want that for myself too. So that's where this is coming from. So let's talk about a biblical theology of race. And you know, the story of the Bible, God's story in in history, is often talked about in four movements. And those four movements are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's a great framework for the story of God, right? God is the creator of all things, creates things good, but then 
So that's creation. Then fall. Then sin enters the world because human beings rebel against God and want to take his place, want his authority, want to exalt themselves over and above him. So that's what we call the fall as sin enters into the world. But then there's this movement in all of Scripture towards the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. And so the, the next you know, movement we talk about in the story is not just creation and fall. What a sad place to end, but there's redemption in Jesus Christ. That he comes to redeem human beings, but also all creation to make all things new and to restore it. And then finally, that there will be restoration, that there will come a day when all things are actually made new. Every illness done away with, every person who's trusted in Christ redeemed, all sin judged, righteousness reigning forever, every unjust system broken down and toppled and done away with, every king who raises himself in pride against the king of kings thwarted and put low, and everyone who's humbled themselves and bowed the knee before Christ raised high. That day of restoration is coming so creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And there are, there are really important understandings in each of those categories that relate to responding to, to violence that are root, that's rooted in racial hatred. So let's just take each piece, okay? Let's start with creation. And there are a couple pieces of good theology there. The first one we find in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, and it's this. It's not going to be complicated, right? God created the world for his glory. God created, the creator of the world, created the world for his glory. Isaiah 43, verse seven says this. God speaking to Isaiah says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now he's got more to say in chapter 43 of Isaiah. He's talking about specific implications about the people that he's made and the work that he's doing. But what I want you to see is what he says right there in verse seven. He says, here's the reason why I created people. I created them to get glory from them. That's why people exist, to get glory. You, me, God is the ultimate reality in all of existence. He defines the existence of all other beings who come underneath him because he makes them and creates them. And he has done so to get glory and fame for himself from it. And it's right that he would do so because only he is God. No one else can seek their own glory and not be called vain, but God can do it and be right because he is God. He is in a category unto himself. He is worthy of glory. You and I are not worthy of glory. We are not worthy of honor, but he is. And so for him to seek his own glory is not only right for him, it's good for us. When he says, oh, I will get my glory from you because don't you know that when he is glorified in you, you will be satisfied in him and you will find delight in life. That's why, friends who are not believers, that's why we urge you to come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We urge you, because not because we want to add to our numbers, not because we want the percentage of American Christians to go up. It's because we want you to have joy unending. It's because we want you to know what you were made for. We believe that you have a design and a purpose, and it is to glorify God. And we want that for you. Now think on that for just a moment. If God has created all things in all of existence for his glory, and there is no other creator who has ever made anything, he has made it all. And if he is the one who has done it for his glory, then that includes people from every race, from every ethnicity, 
It includes men and women, children and adults. It includes everyone. And so to harm or to diminish someone from another race is to steal opportunity for God to get glory. Do you understand that the first response of any person to the kind of violence we've just seen is that steals glory from God and that should deeply offend the heart of every believer because he is worthy of glory and it should offend us when he is robbed of that glory. If you, if you don't start there, any other implication around race makes no sense, but if you start there and you understand that acts of racial hatred steal glory from God, then your heart softens because you recognize whatever defensiveness I feel around issues of race, whatever political issues, how I think things should happen in this category or that category, they are all, they are all uh, in some sense quelled when you recognize the first truth that I need to keep in my mind as it relates to race in the world is that God has designed people of different races to get himself glory and I will not allow God to be robbed of glory. The second thing we see in this category of creation, the second theological truth is found in Genesis 1.27 and we, and we talk about this all the time. It's that God made people in his image. He placed his image in people. This is what Genesis 1:27 says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we learn there is that all people are created in the image of God. We all carry rational, moral, and emotional capacities to reflect what he is like. Let me just say, that's what we mean when we say made in the image of God, because that's kind of this churchy idea. I get it, maybe confusing. We just mean like image, like in a mirror, right? So when we say people are made in the image of God, it means they reflect the very nature of God. And they do so in some pretty important ways, in ways that nothing else in creation actually does to the same degree. Human beings are the pinnacle of the created order, of the created world. We have been given dominion over creation as such. We reflect God's image in our rational capacities, our ability to think and reason. We reflect God in our moral capacities, our ability to, to see right and wrong, good and bad, and to call them such, right? To call something that is evil, evil. And to not shy away from that. What took place last Saturday was moral evil. You understand that, right? We must say that. It's evil. We reflect his capacity, not, not just, we have the capacity to reflect him not just morally, not just rationally, but also emotively. That we're emotional beings. Some of you are thinking, I'm not a very emotional being. You are. You're filled with emotion, right? And the reason is because God has planted that in you. It reflects his very likeness. Now, Here's the implication of that. To harm or diminish someone from another race is to prevent an opportunity for God to display himself in the world. If we're all made in the image of God and he has made people of different races, different ethnicities, then it stands to reason that he has done so in order to allow different aspects of his image to come out in different ways in different places, yes? And if that's true, then to harm someone of a different culture, of a different ethnicity, of a different racial, racial background, to do that is to prevent the opportunity for God to show his likeness, his image-bearingness in that way, in that place. You follow that? So those are two implications from creation. Now let's move to the next thing, which is the fall. 
We said the fall is human beings rebelling against God and sin entering the world. So the first thing that we want to think about here in terms of responding to violence rooted in racial hatred is that sin is ultimately self-exaltation. That's the first thing we want to think about. Sin is ultimately self-exaltation. Original sin, Adam's choice, Eve's choice, was to exalt themselves over and above God. But the result of that is that we continue to do that. We exalt ourselves over God, but not just over God, over what? Over one another. It's a clear expression of the ultimate root of sin when we exalt ourselves over someone else. And violence rooted in racial hatred and and worldviews rooted in racial hatred or supremacy of one race over another is exactly that original sin played out in the area of race. It's saying some category of who I am makes me superior to the category that they possess of who they are. And to exalt myself because of some attribute I possess over another person is rooted in the very, what, what sin originally was. It, can't be more, it couldn't be more clear that what's taking place when you get worldviews like white nationalism, that what you're getting is essentially just an expression of that self-exaltation. I, I talked about Russell Moore earlier, and here's another quote from him speaking specifically about that one expression of this idea of self-exaltation, white nationalism. He says, white nationalism is not just another ideology in a world filled with competing opinions. White nationalism is a manifestation of an ancient evil that we as Christians, of all people, ought to recognize immediately. White nationalism emerges from what the Bible calls the way of the flesh. This is a form of idolatry that exalts one's own creaturely attributes making a God out of, for, exist, for instance, one's ancestral origins or one's tribal culture. Do you get what Russell Moore's saying there? What he's essentially saying is, this, I, he's talking about white nationalism in particular, but there's all kinds of views on race that exalt my race over someone else's race or say I have more value because of where I come from, my people of origin, my ancestral heritage, than they do. My people is superior to their people. And what all he's saying is that's just rooted way back in the garden. It's all the way back to what we should recognize always whenever we see someone exalting themselves in this way because of something they possess. It just is a manifestation of original sin. It takes us all the way back into the garden and we should recognize that and see it for what it's worth because don't we spend so much of life trying to rid ourselves of our pride and self-exaltation in repentance and confession before God and humbling ourselves before him. And as that happens, we become humble with others as well. The second thing we see in this category of the fall, this movement of the story, is that sin affects more than individuals. Now, I wanna tell you why I'm, gonna, why I'm going here with this because it's, I think it's a pretty important one when it comes to responding to the kind of violence that we've seen that's rooted in racial hatred. Sin affects more than individuals. Uh, listen to what Romans chapter eight says. I'm gonna flip there real quick. In Romans chapter eight, verses 19 through 23, says this. It says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been, bro- has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, what Paul is talking about there in Romans chapter eight is this. He's saying that all of the creation has been affected by sin, not just human beings. And it says that the creation, the created world, the order around us actually looks to humanity to be reconciled to God and be ultimately redeemed through the reception of our glorified bodies one day when Jesus comes back. It says they're waiting eagerly for that to happen, for human beings to get the completion of their redemption because when we do, what will happen to the creation? It will also get it. And so the point is this. Sin and the fall have affected more than just individual people. It hasn't just separated you as an individual person from God. It's affected the entire created order in which we live. And that includes the systems that we create. We create systems to get things done as a culture, as a society. Every society does. And because of the fall, it's very possible that it's not just that individual people have a problem, that the systems that those people create have a problem. And therefore, when those systems are unjust, when they're not, when they're not righteous, when they disadvantage one group of people intentionally or perhaps even unintentionally, that's a problem as much as it is that you and I as individual people are separated from God by our sin. And so when we say sin affects more than individuals, then what we are, the implication for that is this. If whole systems in our world and large pieces of culture are corrupted by sin, then it is possible and perhaps even likely that we can cause harm to someone of another race simply through implementing, our, or implementing or participating in an unjust system, whether intentionally or unintentionally. So listen to Tim Keller this week, a, a pastor in New York, and he said it this way. So when he became a pastor in Virginia, there was a city council, and it was elected at large by the people of their city. He said about 25% of the city was African American, 75% was white, and the African-American portion of the city had been historically disadvantaged and didn't have resources. And the city council was elected at large, which meant that they weren't elected by representatives of every different segment of the society. They were elected by everyone in the city, voted for everyone on the city council. And what that meant was everyone on the city council was what? They were white because they were elected by the 75%. The 25% were never gonna have a voice or a person that represented them on the city council. It was never gonna happen. Now, here's the thing. And this is gonna turn us into the idea of responsibility. Here's what Tim said. He said, I recognize that I lived in that city and never said or did a word. I never said a word about that, never looked into it, passively just accepted that that was the way things were. But this was an unjust system that prevented people who were being disadvantaged from having what they needed. And my saying nothing even though I wasn't the person actively perpetrating this, some people knew what was going on and were doing it on purpose. Other people had no clue. And other people knew but didn't care enough to do anything about it. He said, I had some knowledge of it. I did nothing about it. And his assessment of that was, I had a responsibility that I didn't do anything about this while I knew it was taking place. Even though I wasn't actively or intentionally committing harm, I was allowing harm by failing to do anything about the situation or the system that I saw. So the first thing we see is sin affects not just individuals but systems. I want you to understand that because it's a big deal when we think about harm rooted in racial hatred. 
the next thing I want you to think about is what we just talked about, is the corporate responsibility that we bear. Now often, for us as Westerners, it is very hard to grasp what is a biblical idea that we have responsibility for sin that we don't personally commit. We have responsibility for sin that we do not personally, individually commit. I know that's a really hard concept, particularly for white Westerners, but for Westerners in general, that's a very hard concept. But I want you to understand the Bible is filled with examples of corporate responsibility for sin. Israel, as a nation, is judged for the acts of her leaders, and all the people get the repercussions of what the the leaders of Israel do. Do you recall that when we studied the book of Isaiah? Think about Joshua chapter seven. If you know this story, I won't go into all the details, but Achan is a man in the nation of Israel and he commits a sin by doing something God told him not to do and his entire family bears the punishment for his sin. And when we read that story as Westerners, we think to ourselves, that makes no sense, but you have to understand that someone from Israel reading that absolutely understood corporate responsibility for sin and that made absolute sin that his entire family was punished for what he had done as the representative of that family. Daniel, in Daniel chapter nine, we studied the book of Daniel not too long ago, and I pointed this out when we studied it. In Daniel chapter nine, Daniel is the most righteous man perhaps in all of scripture other than Jesus. This guy's unbelievable. At every turn, he seems to make wise, right decisions. He's brave, he's courageous, he's faithful. At every turn. And in Daniel chapter nine, the most interesting thing happens. Daniel prays a a prayer of repentance and confession on behalf of his people, and he says, we have done this sin And if there was anyone who could say, I didn't do it, God, it would be Daniel. And yet Daniel is saying, no, because I am one of my people, I am responsible for the sin of my people. Do you see what I'm getting at? Now here's the trickiness, because here's here's where it gets kind of, um, sometimes you'll run into challenges here. In Jeremiah chapter 31, see we should be very thankful for the gospel, because here's what the gospel has done. It is said that I am no longer judged for my father's sin. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 29, what we see is this. He says, no longer will the father eat sour grapes and the children's teeth be set on edge. That's a great metaphor. What he means is this. No longer will the son or the daughter be punished for the sin of the father. So because of what Jesus has done, there is an individuality, there is an individualness to the gospel and to our relationship with God. That is not to be denied. We are not only part of a corporate whole. But that doesn't mean that we don't still bear some responsibility when our people are immersed in sinful systems and committing sinful acts, even if we're not the ones doing it. Recognize the the very gospel itself, the very message of the gospel actually depends upon an understanding of corporate responsibility. Did you know that? In Romans chapter five, we have, excuse excuse the theological terms here, but we have the home of what we call uh, this great piece of theology called federal theology. And what federal theology is, is the idea that I'm not just condemned because of the sins I commit, I'm condemned because I'm part of a race of people, the human race that has sinned. Adam's sin imparted guilt to me. It's not just that it imparted to me the ability to commit sin and then I came into the world and I was good, but then I committed sin and now I'm condemned. I was condemned from birth because I inherited not just Adam's predisposition to sin, I inherited his guilt by the very nature of being part of the human race. That's corporate responsibility, do you see it? Without Romans five, 
and corporate responsibility for sin. There's no gospel. There's no, there's no everyone needs a savior. But we are guilty because we are a part of the human race. By the way, it works the other way too. Because the righteousness we need to be saved is given to us by someone else. The very gospel depends on the idea, not just of corporate responsibility, but of corporate benefit, right? Of corporate blessing, that because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I've done, I receive benefit. So those pieces of understanding theologically are really important for us when we think about violence rooted in racial hatred because we're often so prone to kind of sit back and say, I have no responsibility. But when we understand the biblical concepts that sin affects more than just individuals, it affects whole systems and cultures. And we understand that there is a responsibility for us as part of a people who commit violence to repent and own and ask ourselves, where have I allowed that? What portion have I played in that? And even if I can say, I have done nothing individually, that there's a corporateness to the nature of our existence when we exist as a part of a people that calls us to repent on behalf of our people. Now, I know that's a hard one, okay? So you can ponder that one. I can see the faces out there. Wrestle with that one a little bit, okay? Go back to those texts that I looked at. Don't just believe me because I said it. Go back to the scriptures and see if what I'm telling you is accurate. The next movement is, the, is redemption. And we're gonna, we're gonna move quickly here. The next movement is redemption, which is in Christ's redeeming work. And I, I just wanna show you two things here. In Christ's redeeming work, he intentionally created a diverse church. That's, a, that's another piece of theology you need in your back pocket. When Christ died, he didn't just die to redeem individuals, he died to create a church, a group of people, and he intended for that group of people to be a diverse group of people. In Ephesians chapter two, in fact, the great expression of the truth of the gospel is found to be in that church context, and I think in, you know, this can be said then broadly. It's said to be that Christ, through his work on the cross, is said to have broken down the dividing wall of hostility between two races of people, between Jew and Gentile. He says, don't you know that this is the beauty and the glory of the gospel on display, that I have created a church of two people who were not near one another, did not love one another, but in me, I bring them together. That's how strong and how good and how powerful I am, and I intend for my church to be a church of diverse people. And so we see that he has died to create a church that is diverse. So harboring animosity or even indifference towards people of other races or harm caused to them is questioning God's wisdom in creating the church. And to some degree, it's denying your place in it. The second thing we see under this category of redemption is that Christ redeems us by faith so that no one gets to claim superiority. This is the other thing he says in Ephesians chapter two. He says, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between Jew and Gentile. You might ask, well, how? And he says, because what I've done is I've made it so that you don't, you don't get justified by the law so that the Jew can no longer say, well, we have the law that God gave us and we followed it and you did not, Gentile. Therefore, we're superior to you. He says, no, no, you're not saved by following the law. You're saved by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, work on the cross and his resurrection because that's how I save you. Now the ground is level at the foot of the cross so that neither Jew nor Gentile, neither of these races of people can say, I'm superior to you or you're superior to me. 
No, we all come to Christ by faith. And because we come to him by faith now, that's, that is how the dividing wall of hostility gets broken down between two races of people. Because both recognize that if God had not saved me, I could not have been saved. We are equally in need of rescuing. And when people recognize they're equally in need of rescuing, it humbles you enough to relate to one another graciously and well. It breaks down hostility between you. Those are two pieces of theology under the category of redemption. They're so deeply important. And then the last, we said restoration is the last movement of God's story. And the thing I just want you to see here is this, is that one day, we already alluded to it, God is going to make all things new. That includes every broken system. That includes every act of violence undone. When you recognize that's the trajectory we're headed on, then you find yourself saying, well, I need to work to usher that kind of kingdom into the world. I wanna, I wanna be a part of bringing his kingdom into the world. And so I think about how to, how to do that and how to be a part of that and I recognize that acts of violence rooted in racial hatred are part of diminishing that kingdom. All right, so what's a... What are some ideas for practical response? I know I'm moving quick, friends, and I apologize. You can listen to it again maybe this week if, you, if you're a glutton for punishment, I guess. But what should be a Christian's practical response? And a few thoughts here that I've, I've just borrowed these from friends who are much better versed in this conversation than I am. I've been pondering my own place in this this week and prayerfully considering how God is calling me to move forward. And I invite you to do the same the first thing I know I can say is that I should be looking for the seeds of violence in myself. I should be looking, see, the seeds of the violence that were committed last week, at least particularly the one in El Paso, the seeds of that violence, they're rooted in racial hatred. And when I recognize that these subtle attitudes exist in me that diminish people of other races, that look down on them, that think of myself as superior, any attitude like that is, is a seed of that kind of violence. Those seeds may not ever blossom into the kind of violence we saw this week. Prayerfully, Lord, you know, have mercy, no. But that is the seed that begins the growth of that. That's, by the way, why we have to talk about it together. You know that, right? We can't just let those seeds of violence sit in our heart and in our psyches. If we don't address it, we don't call it for what it is and point to right thinking and right theology and truth. We're in danger of letting those things sit there. So ask God to examine you. Just ask God to examine you. What seeds are in me? What seeds of that kind of violence? Rather than go, I can't believe he would do that. Ask, are the seeds of that kind of act in me? And don't be afraid because God is steadfast in his love for you. And he is merciful. The second thing I know we can do is we can vocalize our lament over those things. When we're silent about violence, particularly violence rooted in racial hatred, our brothers and sisters who are people of color wonder, do we care? They wonder, does it matter that we were targeted Specifically for this reason, we were targeted. Does it, do you, does it matter to you or do you just go about your merry way? Learning to lament and voicing that lament. It can't be empty platitudes, friends. It can't be. You have, to, you have to say, what more can I do and where else do I go next? 
but vocalizing that lament is a good is a good place to begin. Vocalizing that lament is a good place to begin. And then I will last one I'll give you is this. Uh, be willing to look for how you are perhaps actively, but maybe passively, complicit in unjust systems. Look at your city government. Look at your school board. Look at the different systems that exist that you are a part of and ask yourself the question, are there injustices in the system that I've just been content to allow to exist? Maybe I've been actively participating and bringing those about. Maybe I've been passively just accepting that they're there. But to begin to engage and ask the question, are there systems that exist? And to, and to think about, too, not just the seeds of violence in my own heart, but to think about, what is the history of my people? What have I inherited? I've been doing some reflecting on that from my tribe, my people. What, what attitudes, what thoughts have come down to me? I encourage you to think through those things. Those are a couple of practical ways to begin to think about responding. I know that they're small, but you have to begin somewhere. So I'll encourage you in that. We're gonna sing to close our time together. Thank you for your patience, and I know that that was a lot, drinking from the fire hose a bit today. I pray that it served you well. Let me pray, and then we'll sing together to close our time. So Lord, I, I pray that uh, I've been faithful with your word now. I pray that you take it and plant it in our hearts. Thank you for the grace of your people to give me a few extra minutes today to elaborate on some important things. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you come and work in our hearts. Break down defensiveness in us and raise up a desire to be committed to justice and righteousness so that we might be well-pleasing to you, so that you'd get glory. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And why don't you stand and sing with us?